And if you want to follow along, it's fine. But I'm going to read this out of the voice translation. And again, the reason I like that, one of the reasons I like this translation is just there's a freshness to it. It's uh, uh, written in a, such a manner so as you can kind of keep track of what's happening, uh, who's saying what, and that kind of thing. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 5, we hear about a man named Naaman. His master considered him to be an extraordinary man. He was a military commander of Aram's army. That's the king. And he had won important battles for Aram by the power of the eternal. Naturally, he was greatly esteemed by his king. Naaman was a fierce warrior, but he also had a skin disease. Now, one time, the Arameans went out in raiding parties, took a little girl from Israel as their prisoner. The little girl became a servant of Naaman's wife the girl, to Naaman's wife. If only my master could be near the prophet in Samaria, the prophet could heal my master's disease. Naaman became hopeful. And he went and told his king that what the little girl had said from Israel had said. And the king of Aram says, said this, I'm going to write a letter to Israel's king, and I want you to take it to him immediately. Naaman left with the king's letter in hand, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, 10 sets of fine linen, Naaman handed the letter to Israel's king, and the king read it. The king carrying the letter, uh, this letter is my servant, Naaman. He has a skin disease. I request that you heal him. Now, you follow what's happening? The king of Israel just got this letter requesting this happen. Ripping his clothing. Who does he think I am? God? Why does Aram think that I have the power to kill and make alive again? What in the world makes him think that I can heal you of this disease? It's obvious that Aram is trying to create a trouble between us. Elisha, the man of God, received word that Israel's king had ripped his clothing, and so he sent a message to Israel's king. What's caused you to rip your clothing? Now, again, that's a sign of despair. Uh, tell the man who has come to you for healing to come to me. Then he'll be assured that a prophet lives in Israel. The king told Naaman to go find Elisha. So Naaman showed up at Elisha's door with horses and chariots. Elisha didn't show his face, but instead sent instructions through his servant Wash yourself in the Jordan River seven times. The waters will heal you, and your skin will come back to normal. You'll be cleansed. Naaman boiled with anger, and he left Elisha. He had come to the house expecting something much different. What is this? I came here thinking that Elisha would come outside and call upon the name of the Eternal, his God, and Elisha would, his hand would pass over my sores, and he would heal my disease, not the waters of Jordan. The Abaddon, Farpara rivers are in Damascus are greater rivers than all the rivers in Israel combined. So why couldn't I just go bathe in those and be healed? Naaman stormed away, boiling in anger. Later, his servants approached him and spoke with respect. Father, if the prophet had told you to do something important, wouldn't you have done it? 
Why is it difficult for you to follow the instructions when he tells you, bathe yourself in the Jordan and you'll be cleansed? So Naaman swallowed his pride, walked into the Jordan River, washed himself just as the men of God had instructed him, and there a miracle occurred. His skin disease was healed. It was like the skin of an infant. He was cleansed from the disease. Naaman and his entourage went back to the man of God. I am convinced there is no God who exists in the entire world like the true God of Israel. Please accept this gift from me. Now, I'm going to skip forward to the gospel account for this week. By the way, that was the lectionary account uh, out of uh, the Old Testament. And that's 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings. Luke 17. Luke 17. By the way, my, uh, my wife and I were helping our son get settled into his house in Indianapolis yesterday, and I went up and down the stairs a thousand times, and that's probably showing up in my fatigue. Sorry about that. Here we go. Verse 11, Luke 17. Jesus was still pressing toward Jerusalem. Now, taking a road along the border between, watch this, Samaria and Galilee considered an undesirable territory. And on the outskirts of the border town of, 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 along the road, he was greeted from a distance by a group of 10 people who were under quarantine because of an ugly, disgusting skin disease known as leprosy. Shouting across the distance, Jesus, show mercy on us. Or your translation may say what we've come to know is the Jesus prayer. Jesus have mercy on us. Jesus, go now and present yourself to the priest for inspection of your disease. <clears throat> they went. And before they reached the priest, their skin disease was healed, leaving no trace of the disease that scarred them and separated them from the community. One of them, the instant he realized he had been healed, turned and ran back to Jesus, shouting praises to God. He prostrated himself face down at Jesus' feet. Thank you. Thank you. Now, his, this fellow happened to be not a Jew, but a Samaritan. Didn't all ten receive the same healing as this fellow did? Where are the other nine? Was only the one who came back to give praise to God an outsider? To the Samaritan man, Jesus said, get up and go your way. Your faith has made you healthy again. Lord, I ask that you speak to our hearts from the passages that we've looked at today. Lord, we trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The title I've given the message this morning is, What Do You See? Um, as a part of Denise's master's program many years ago, I was subjected, well, no, let me say this clearly. I volunteered as a subject to be tested. No, she didn't do electroshock therapy. She still doesn't believe in it. Nobody caught that joke. Wow, you guys are half awake. Okay. But there were at least two different tests that come to mind for me. One was an IQ test that she did. And, uh, and then there was another one called the Rorschach Inkblot. Did you get that picture? Ah, you might see it now popping up right there in front of you. Now, 
We've been married, just, uh, just the first, that one right there. We've been married for 39 years, and I'm still waiting to hear if I pass the IQ test. She's never told me whether or not I passed. And then when she did the ink blot, I mean, she never told me the results of that stuff. I mean, that mess. Who knows? Maybe I wound up in an odd category. Now, the reason that she couldn't was a couple of reasons. She was a student. She wasn't allowed to diagnose. But more importantly, I will dis disclose for my wife, I think I have this right. She is under the strong opinion that many of these tests are so frail at actually revealing the real person. Right, Lynn? Yeah. And oftentimes, in fact, her study, if I could tell you what her master's thesis was initially written on, it was on state-dependent learning, which means that there are times when we're in a certain emotional state that we remember things in a certain way, and, and maybe you're tested at that time and it all comes out really good and clear, but maybe at another time you're in a different place and you're actually are processing quite differently. Does that mean you're a different dude at different times or dudette? No, not really. It just means that those tests give you just a little snapshot, which, by the way, is the weakness of testing. For those of you who, you know, if I can go on a sidebar note, um, just, they're just really frail. So what's important is that we have to go through the hard work of discerning and listening and seeing who the person really is. See, so often we're informed more by what we believe than what we see. Our eyes may not always see what's true. Go ahead and flip up that next picture. This is a familiar picture. Um, and maybe go to the next one. It becomes a little bit more glaring with this one. And, and you know, the, the key question in this is, what do you see? An old woman or a fair maiden? A person full of life and possibility or someone whose days appear to be numbered? Cue the Disney score. Once upon a time, in a faraway land, a young prince lived in a shining castle. Although he had everything that his heart desired, the prince was spoiled, selfish, and unkind. But one winter's night, an old beggar woman came to the castle, offered him a single rose in return for shelter from the bitter cold, repulsed by her haggard appearance. The prince sneered at the gift and turned the old woman away. But she warned him not to be deceived by appearances, for beauty is found within. When he dismissed her again, the old woman's appearance melted away to reveal a beautiful enchantress. The princess tried to apologize, but it was too late, for she had seen there was no love in his heart. See, it really matters what we see. What we see can often reveal more about what we believe than what we care to admit. That's good. I'm done with those. Um, you know, we've all been, here's the thing, we have all been touched by things that have left us feeling haggard, where sin has left us bent, brokenness has touched our lives. We've all been mangled at some place or another. 
And by the way, I agree with that statement. Let us not judge one another by our worst mistake or our worst place where we've been mangled and hurt. That's, that doesn't define who we are. See, many of us have heard a gospel as a message, however, that sounds a little bit like this. You see, oh, you know, I see the mess that you're in, but God looks at you and he forgives you and he, he puts on rose-colored glasses so he doesn't see all that mess. Now, I understand the messaging here, but it's important that we discover the depth of the good news of the gospel because the gospel proclaims that God has always seen the real you. You were the lost sheep that he went to look for. You were the pearl of great prize that he sold everything to attain. The real you is what he intended from the foundation of the world and beloved discerning that we're more than just forgiven and tolerated but cherished and loved is to discern the mercy and the grace of the gospel. It is so important to rehearse over and over. See, his mercy sees past our wounds, our facades. But watch this. It invites us to more than that see from his point of view what he sees. Whole. Healed. Loved. Valued. Sons and daughters, partakers of the divine inheritance. Grace that's greater than all our sin, yes, but that we could boldly agree with the anthem of heaven. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain, who purchased men for God from every tribe, language, and tongue. Revelation 4 and 5, but watch this. He knows that you are worth what he paid. Beloved, to surrender to that vision is to become whole. What do you see when you look in the mirror? See, I, I, I wanted to take the time to look at both of those stories because both of these stories really tell us a story about vision. This Old Testament story, the story of Naaman, 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman the powerful a man who had privilege, a man who saw the world through that lens of power and privilege. He'd earned uh, you know, his place as being commander of the king's army. The, the, the king considered him extraordinary. He had, he had not just the king's respect, but his undivided support. But his power and his success and how much he was revered couldn't deal with the problem that he's faced with. He's got leprosy. None of his power, none of his privilege, none of his might could stop what was happening to his body. Interesting. Sickness is a leveler like that. And a slave girl comes and says, you know, there's a prophet in Israel, in Samaria. I think he should go. And isn't it fascinating that the king... Uh, of Aram, which is up near Syria, okay? He sends a word to the king of Israel. And, and, and oddly enough, the king of Israel, you know, he's like, here, 
Heal this man. Now watch this. Why did the king of Aram send this message to the king of Israel to to heal him? Because watch, he equated power to the most powerful. So watch this. This is really important, and it really is a subtext. As followers of Jesus, we need to discern in the world that we're living in. Privilege often assumes privilege will cure the problem. So the king's like, I got this. Ply him with money. Because after all, Israel at this point had just become, you know, what what was happening historically was they'd have kings from the north come in and just knock their teeth in, take their stuff and go back. And kings from the south had come up, you know, they were just like fodder. They had hardly anything. And so they're like, of course, they're going to want that. Of course, I'll give him a favor and reveal my power and bestow it upon him, and therefore that will cure it. Of course, the king of Israel knows his situation. He thinks this guy is ready trying to pick a fight with him. So and Elisha hears about the situation. Oh, interestingly, Elisha doesn't even see him face to face. He just tells Naaman, go and wash in the river. Naaman's response is, are you kidding me? That's so weak. That's so pathetic. He's looking for power. And and the prophet just sends his servant to, to bring the word to him. He doesn't even come put hands on him. And, and finally, as he's storming away, one of his servants finally says, you know, if He'd ask you to do something hard. You'd have done it. Why don't you just like surrender to what he said? So the story of Naaman touches on this truth that many of us have to face at one time or another. Am I ready to choose surrender? Or do I have to be control of what's happening in my world around me? Naaman is invited to let go of control to bring his healing into his life, he's invited to surrender. Beloved, that's a powerful message. See, we all have messages uh, that, that tell us some things like that. And, and by the way, sometimes they sound very religious. You know, if you do enough, if you give enough. Beloved, the gospel is about mercy. And it's mercy that we don't deserve. It's mercy that we can't demand. It's freely given to us in Christ. His mercy sees past all of this stuff, and, and it's his mercy that makes us whole. In the gospel reading today, I'm going to come back to Naaman here in a minute. Luke 17, we've got Naaman, but for Jesus, he has ten nameless lepers. Men, women, I don't know, probably men. Could have been a, few, a couple of women in there, we're not sure. We don't know their names, but they're cut off. They're cut off from their community, society, worship, family, community, everything that they've known about their life. They are required by law to cry out unclean when anybody comes near them and to keep their head bowed. Yet they've managed to hear and to see that there's a prophet in Samaria, another prophet whose name is Jesus, and they cry out, have mercy upon us. 
Here these individuals are, cut off from hope and from worship, and they cry out for mercy. Beloved, again, I want to say this. The heart of the gospel is a revelation of the mercy of God. But wait a minute. This is something they would have heard rehearsed in synagogue over and over again. The Lord, Psalm 103, is full of compassion and mercy. They've got nothing to offer, nothing they can do. The only thing they can appeal to is mercy. By the way, that is how God describes himself. Full of compassion, gracious, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Remember Jesus when he told the story just a few chapters early of the who is it, who's actually a neighbor, and he tells the story of a good Samaritan, and he asked the question, who is a neighbor? And he said, the one who showed mercy. So Jesus comes to reveal mercy. See, we've got ten lepers. They're not naming the powerful with wealth and prestige. They're nameless, forgotten, helpless, and hopeless individuals with no measure to fix what is faced in front of them. They see Jesus, and they cry out for mercy. I want you to notice a couple of things in the text. First is this. It is gospel that will preach. Watch Luke 17, verse 14. When Jesus saw them. Can we just... Put our finger on that. Beloved, before they cried out for mercy, Jesus saw them. He saw their pain, their misery, their story. He saw them. Beloved, this is the truth of the good news to us. Jesus sees you. The real you, the, the disappointments, the real story. And, and, and watch, he doesn't even say, what did, you know, are, are, did, you, did you say did you ask for something? You just asked for mercy. But did you identify why I think you might have that leprosy? Let's get to the root of that. They just cry out for mercy, and then he says, go show yourself to the priest. Now, again, oh, why would I do that? They're just going to reject me. There's not a formula. He just says, go. And in the going, oh, wait a minute. They're invited to do something that Naaman was invited to do, to surrender to their sense of control and move towards mercy. And as they go, they're cleansed. Now, I, I want to I just invite you on that walk with them. Can you imagine them as they're walking and, and they're noticing something happening to their hands? And they're glancing at, is that happening to you? Is that, wait, look at me. Look at, what, can you see my face? My hand, what is, what is, what is my, what does my face look like? And they begin to, they begin to share with one another, something's happened. Could it be? Could I actually get my life back? Could I be known as, as Philip again? John? Peter? I mean, I'm just naming off some names, but we don't know what their names were. Could, I, could, I, could it be that, that I might actually be able to go back to my home, to my synagogue? I could actually live a normal existence again. 
I am convinced that these lepers began to have a vision, and that was their vision. I might be able to get my life back. And it was good, and it captured their heart. But one of them, one of them, when he begins to identify, and, and, and again, I'm inferring to the text, but I'm pretty sure that had to have happened, that they're conferring with each other. And he's like, oh, my goodness, look at me. I'm a Samaritan, and I'm even healed. Look at this. He begins to see something else is at work. More than just getting his life back, he's identifying something that Naaman identified. God's been in my life. Something's happened to me and given me a gift. It wasn't a result of my lineage. This, this has to be God. He comes back courageously, glorifying God. And watch this. He's not only recognizing the healing as a, as, as a gift of God, but that its source is Jesus. He's naming Jesus as God. He doesn't want to just get his life back to normal, but he's recognizing that the source of that mercy is God himself. And now, let me point to one thing, and then I want to I wanna talk about a couple of things. One is this. Well, no, let, let, let me, do you, do you guys, I want you to see this, because I've had some of those moments in my journey, and I, I know you guys have had as well. But here's what I'm trying to get at, is that this man sees something, and he's like, this isn't just a good day, this is God. Okay? This isn't just like good fortune, good circumstance. Um, August the 24th, 1987, I woke up, bright fluorescent lights in my eyeballs. It was an unmistakable moment that I knew the hand of God was on me. Here's the backdrop. About three hours earlier, I was being wheeled into surgery because the day before I'd had surgery and I was bleeding. And as I'm being wheeled into the surgical suite, and my surgeon had met me and said, we've got to open you back up. And I'm like, okay, all right, this is all going to be good. It's going to be fine. My direct supervisor's daughter, who's the director of the nurses, of the surgical nurses, I, I only know this because I'm working as a chaplain at Parkview at the time. She greets me, grabs my hand. I look in her eyes, and she's weeping. That's when I thought, oh, this is not good. Then I'm, as I'm being put onto the table, I'm looking up and I see my surgeon standing there and he's saying, hurry up. And then the anesthesiologist, the last thing I hear, he's not stable. That's the last I heard. And that's when I thought, oh, I may not wake up. When I woke up, I was like, oh, whew, God is in this place. Now, let me finish. Let me just tell you a couple more stories after that. Like, three, like four weeks later, I get a phone call. I'm barely back to work. Denise said, um, no, I'm not pregnant. I have a cyst, and they want to do surgery this week. She lost her left ovary. The next day, the doctor said, surgery went well. You will have trouble having kids. I always love telling people that. That's supposed you can laugh at that. We've had seven biological children after that. It's kind of funny. 
because six weeks after that date, you know, it's like boom, boom, boom. Like, like I'm almost, almost immediately we conceived. And on August the 12th, 1988, our oldest was born. And it was an unmistakable moment of mercy. I know some of you guys know what that's like. You know what I'm talking about? So here, let, let, let me just point to a couple of things out of this text that I, I'm hoping that you'll see. Luke 17, 17 says, I, and this I hadn't noticed until I was working with the text this week. All of them were cleansed. No matter how your translation translates it, cleansed or healed. But it's verse 19 that Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And the, or the, the original word is saved or sozo. And so it's this word for salvation because this man saw past his story and he saw the leadership of God in his life, the presence of the mercy of God. I wonder how many exchanges of my life have been a little bit like Naaman. Lord, let me show you what I got. Or I wonder how many of my exchanges in my spiritual life have been like the nine. God, if you just get this obstacle out of my life, I can get it back to normal. Or even worse, I can get back to normal to my place of power, privilege. I remember one of my friends who shared with me, he said, for the longest time, years, I would go to the altar and pray. He said, it wasn't because I was really trying to get my life right. I just wanted my wife back. And he realized how he was still trying to control. Samaritan knew he had nothing to get back to, maybe. My point is he saw mercy and he surrendered to it. So, guys, those fluorescent light bulbs are a holy moment for me. That There are times when I come back to it and I say, Lord, I'm surrendering. I know your presence. I want to say this again to all of us this morning. Naaman or nameless, Jesus saw us in mercy. So the question for me today is, will I surrender again to that mercy, to his invitation? Okay, in that moment it was unmistakable, but in other places, in other times in my life, it, it doesn't seem quite as clear. And Jesus' invitation to me is, um, hey, Ben, will you forgive? Are you serious? Do you know what they did? I will when they finally admit to what they did. Will you give? Yeah, but I've given and given, and there's like nothing coming back. Will you bless? See, this is, this is where surrender and recognizing my need for mercy begins to get some teeth in my life. You see, Here's the place that will move us into real worship. Will I see the mercy of God and surrender to it? Will I choose worship over my own desires to make my life work? 
the word that is used for thanksgiving describing the Samaritan who came back, the word is Eucharisto. Now, out of some of our traditions, we're familiar with what we call the Eucharist. But that word just means thanks. But in its original language, as you read it in the story of the Samaritan, it means to acknowledge God's grace works well. There's not a thing I can do. Guys, there's not a one of us that doesn't face this temptation to try to control our life and control the stuff going on around us. Your faith has made you well. Now, even that we can try to put into a formula. I want to remind you what that definition of faith that we looked at last week was fidelity or faithfulness to love and trust. So, Lord, I want to surrender to mercy again today. Beloved, I, I just want to proclaim this over us. The grace and the mercy of God. He sees the real you that he intended from the foundation of the world. And he's discerned that we're more, he, he's inviting us. Will you discern that you're more than just forgiven or tolerated, but that you are a loved, cherished, delighted in son and daughter of God who's being invited to discern the depth of mercy and grace even today? Beloved, I believe that's what resurrection power begins to look like in our life. Lord, I believe the power of the resurrection, ooh, right here, right now. What do you see? I see a mess. I see some relationships that don't feel like they can get fixed. Oh, God, I want to see mercy. I want to surrender to it again afresh today. So, Lord, I ask you for your grace, for your help individually, corporately. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. I want to invite you, if you would, would you stand with me and let's, let's pray this prayer together. And it's going to bring us, bring us to the table, to the place of giving thanks but we're also proclaiming more than just thanks. We're proclaiming the presence of God. Now, again, theologically, I know there's some, some traditions that say this thing actually becomes the body and the blood of Christ. Well, they actually have Bible verses that proclaim that. I just want to say there's a mystery in surrendering to the fact that, Lord, your life given for me is the revelation of your mercy in my life to make all things well. Many were cleansed, but your faith has made you well. So let's, let's pray this together. O oh God of compassion, through the witness of a captive made servant, you healed Naaman in the waters of the Jordan. Through Jesus, you healed the lepers. Heal us so we may follow Christ with joy, giving thanks with all our being. So, Lord, as we 